two hymns we sang this morning, Messiah is referred to, he's, he's called something that he was called in one of your scripture passages this week. You remember what that is? The desire of all nations. That's an amazing prophecy there in Haggai chapter 2. If Israel had come back from Babylon, they were given permission by King Cyrus, who was called by name by Isaiah the prophet more than 200 years before his birth. And that appears right there before we had our opening passage last week about what makes the Bible different than other man-made books. What makes the Bible different, kids? What can it do that other books can't? It can tell the, not just the future, but the details of the future. I mean, the Quran talks about one day the earth will be judged by fire. Well, duh. That was written in the scriptures. You know, anything Muhammad got, he got from the Old Testament. But the Bible talks about details and gives us specifics and times and seasons. But the desire of all nations, God told the people who had come back and rebuilt the foundation of the temple, the old men still living, and it says they were ancient men. They were very old. Israel had been out of the land for 70 years. And so if they were only 20 years old and remembered Solomon's temple, and even in that day it was run down because it had been robbed so many times, and they wept because they saw this second temple would not even compare to what had been. And God sent the prophet and said, you know, be strong, be encouraged because something's going to make this second temple different. It's going to be more glorious than the first temple. And what was different about the second temple? Messiah actually came and stood inside of it. In fact, he didn't just stand there, he cleaned it out twice. The beginning and the end of his ministry, he, at 12 years old, he was teaching there. He healed there, and he spent the whole last week of his life teaching there in the daytime. That temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. So if Messiah didn't come in the person of Jesus Christ, then that prophecy cannot be fulfilled. God's a liar. And that's something I like to share with um, Israelis I meet. That's a, that's a pretty important prophecy. So I challenge you this week to... Search the scriptures again. I know some of it's kind of hard and complicated, but it makes you think. And um, uh, this week the theme is the small things. Those were days of small things when the temple was rebuilt. But they were small things that yielded a fruit way on down the road. And we need not take for granted the small things in our lives that God might use later. That's why in everything we do, we should do to His glory. So I hope those devotions that I wrote based on those messages will be an encouragement to you this week and maybe those of us traveling can share those together we got a lot of time to kill on the the airplane so um, we appreciate your prayers I want to start verse by verse in Revelation chapter 19 this morning we'll get as far as we can we finished up 18 we talked about 19 in general last time particularly the first part and how chapter 19 can be summed up with one word. And it's, that word appears four times in this chapter. And it's the only place you'll find it in the New Testament. But it's all over the Old Testament. What word is that? Hallelujah. Which is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. 
Mystery Babylon has been judged. Commercial Babylon, that the onset of its judgment is, is, is here. And there's a hallelujah chorus in heaven. This hallelujah chorus is seen in the first seven verses of the chapter. Verses 8 through 10, we're going to look at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in verses 11 through 16, we're going to eventually see the unveiling or the appearing of Jesus Christ from heaven. Not the coming in the clouds to rapture the church, but the unveiling when he returns to earth, the second coming of Christ. And when he returns to earth, that's, what is pro- that's when what is prophesied in chapter 18 concerning commercial Babylon is fully and finally finished. And these things give us cause as believers to rejoice, even in the darkest of days. I mean, these days are dark. I can't look at the news online anymore without just being filled with rage and anger. Rage and anger. Rage and anger that they're going to try to steal an election from a Baptist pastor that won fairly here in North Carolina. I don't know if you guys saw any of that in the news, but this this Baptist preacher down here in the 9th District that won, he won by 1,900 votes. And then they counted some provisional and absentee ballots, and he lost a 1,000. It went from 1,900 to 900. How does that happen? And then all of a sudden now they're claiming the State Board of Elections refused to certify this election because there's been irregularities claimed. A couple of people have come forward, and I can tell you everything about them. I don't even have to, I can already tell you what type of people these are. Hint, hint. Claiming that somebody came by their house and collected their absentee ballots and promised to turn them in and promised to fill them out for them if they hadn't finished. And so these, this was done, and that's probably why this Baptist preacher went. Look, if you're dumb enough to get an absentee ballot and to turn it into somebody that comes by your house and knocks on your door and claims they'll turn it in for you and claims they'll fill it out for you, if you're that dumb, You don't deserve the right to vote. But the sad thing is that's what most American voters are. That's why our country is in the shape it's in because the average voter is a dummy and has no knowledge. When our country was founded, you had to own property to vote because if you own property, you were paying taxes. So I don't want to get into political speech, but we're in dark days. And we can expect these things to happen. And even when this madness occurs, we can still say hallelujah. We can still praise God because there's positive things happening. There were a couple things things that happened this week that encouraged me. You guys heard about this earthquake in Anchorage, Alaska. I don't believe anybody was killed. Maybe there were a few injuries. But I've talked to some friends I have up there and it was a shaking It scared a lot of people. A friend I've stayed in his home, he's got some work he does, and he says, we've got a lot of pipes and gas lines completely busted. We've got to go fix. Houses were shaking. Brother Wendell Brower, who's the uh, the pastor of Revelation Baptist Church, it's a small, primarily Native American church, Eskimo church up there in, uh, uh, in Anchorage that supports our ministry and has a love for the Jews. He said it was really shaking in his home in the homes of some of the believers. But Alaska's pretty far behind. In, in, they're like six hours behind or five hours behind. That particular morning, 
I was drinking a cup of coffee, and I was just so enraged by some stuff I'd read. Don't ever look at the news before you read the Bible in the morning. Just don't do it. It's a mistake. Go to God's Word first. But I was reading God's Word, and I was just prayerfully thinking about our country, and I just felt led of the Lord to pray specifically. I asked God specifically that morning that somewhere in this nation or sometime today, these are the words I use, that you will shake this nation. And shake it in such a way that it will turn wicked people to you. I prayed that that morning. Well, then I'm coming out from a hike with Brother Robert and I see this in the headlines. So I immediately called Brother Wendell up there to make sure those guys were all right. And he said, yeah, we're fine. It was scary. But I'll tell you what was, what was fun, what interesting about it, what was kind of almost, uh, which was great. He said, you know, there's, about, there's five people that I've been getting on about the things of God that don't have a heart for the Lord and are, are wicked. And they, all five of them had, were scared to death after that happened. And I got in their faces today, and these five people that I've been talking to for a while gave their hearts to the Lord. Wow. So, I, I, you know, the Bible says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I don't claim to be righteous. My righteousness is in Christ. But we should pray. And maybe we should pray that God will strike our country. Because when he does, it brings people to him. It may only be a few, but when he does, it brings people to him. That's one of the things that started the first great awakening in the New England states. There was a, uh, an earthquake in New Hampshire that scared a lot of people. Okay, there were some people that died in Jonathan Edwards' church suddenly. So pray specifically that God does shape this nation... And when he does and we hear about fruit, we can rejoice. We can say, oh, I can praise God for that. Another thing that encouraged me was there's an elderly lady in Granville, North Car- uh, Granville County, North Carolina. Names, uh, I'm not going to give people's names because these things go on public. Uh, I-, I share these messages online. But she's given to our ministry over the years. Real sweet lady. She's had some health problems. She's not able to attend church more anymore. So she gives part of her tithes to our ministry and to another ministry. But over the years, I've, sent, I've tried to send thank you letters and stuff, and at times she's warned me to be careful not to send it to a certain address because her husband will find it. And, and, and she may... And I, the intimation was she'd be in trouble for writing those checks. And so I just tried to be careful over the years and not mention those things because there was a reason why she did, there was a problem there. She wanted to give to the Lord's work. It was, it was money that belonged to her, and I don't think her husband would appreciate that. Um, but I got a card in the mail a couple days ago from her. It was a check from her, and there was a second check in there that was signed by her husband. And the letter inside said, I forgot to mention to you the last time I gave last month, that cashier's check, that wasn't from me. That was my husband." They put the wrong name on it. And then I got another thing. So God's obviously done something there. He's done something there. So, I mean, those are things for which we can rejoice and say hallelujah, even in times of darkness. When this hallelujah chorus takes place in heaven, everything is wrecked and trashed here on earth. But the saints find reason to praise. Even in God's judgment. God's judgment is worth praising. 
What took place in Alaska is worth praising God. The sad thing is people here nowadays won't even consider that that's God's judgment. That's God's wake-up call. It's funny how people are so prideful and arrogant and so agnostic and atheistic, but when the earth starts shaking, it all changes in an instant. All of that pride turns to fear. But praise God, out of that, people get right. They realize how stupid and blind they were. I'm, all, I, I'm always encouraged when I think about that little church up there. That pastor, Brother Brower, was born in Barrow, Alaska, which is the most northerly community in North America. On the mainland, there's some island, big islands in Canada that are farther north. But raised in a, in a Native American village up there, and a lot of drunkenness, a lot of oppression, spiritual. That's a dark place. I've been there. Um, but came to the Lord and pastors a church now. And those, those brethren love and want to support efforts to reach the Jewish people. That's amazing. It's amazing to me. So like-minded folks, and um, I, I was just encouraged to hear that everything was okay up there. But God used it. Um, let's just read uh, these first seven verses. And uh, I thought about the, the scriptures we were reading this past week about rebuilding the temple and all that, that was in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, you know, the people gathered all day to hear God's word as they sought the Lord. Ezra, the, the scribe, it said there was a pulpit of wood made for him. And he stood and read God's word. And it said when he read God's word, the people stood to hear it. So why don't we just stand this morning in, in honor of that? To hear God's word. You used to do that in the Baptist church growing up. The people would stand to hear God's word. And I never knew what that was about. But that's what, that's what the people did in the book of Ezra. After these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. Saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, chapter 17, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God. Remember them from chapters 4 and 5. That sat on the throne saying, Amen. Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent, reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. Amen. You may be seated. The Hallelujah Chorus. One of the most famous uh, musical compositions in western civilization is George Handel's Messiah, which was completed in 1741. 
And part, the end of part two in Handel's big Messiah is a very familiar tune. It's what we've come to know as the Hallelujah Chorus. And Handel's Messiah celebrates the birth of Christ. It celebrates the birth of Christ. But it doesn't do so without pointing to or giving homage to the second coming of Christ. And you have a line from Handel's Messiah right here in this hallelujah chorus in the book of Revelation. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Growing up when I would hear the hallelujah chorus, I didn't know what they were saying there. I didn't know what were they, I couldn't. The symbols, the, the, the enunciation of the syllables was kind of jumbled. I'm like, what are they saying? And then I recognized one day the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And it's, there's also some lines taken out of a passage earlier in the book. So in acknowledging and paying homage to the birth of Christ, Handel, the composer of one of the Western civilization's greatest musical compositions, does not fail to point out the coming of Christ. How can we talk about his birth without his coming? Guys, the, the world doesn't mind Jesus in a manger because a little baby in a manger is helpless and sweet and cute and he doesn't have any say-so in our lives. Just a cute little baby, we can say, oh, how sweet. But they don't like the thought of Jesus as a king. The Catholic Church likes him hanging on a cross in a weakened state. But he's not on the cross. The world doesn't like him as a risen Savior. But to celebrate the birth of Christ is to celebrate his coming. It's to declare his coming. And the Old Testament prophets couldn't speak of his first coming without speaking of his second coming. To the point that oftentimes they didn't even know what they were prophesying. Remember that passage last week? The comma? Jesus sat down and stopped reading, particularly at that place in Isaiah, on purpose. Because there in that prophecy was the first coming and the second coming. So, why not celebrate Christ's second coming this time of year? Why not make that a part of our preaching and our enunciation as we meet people? I told a guy yesterday, I won't go into details, he was a stranger and... Um, it was one of those times uh, Robert and I had gotten together and we were talking and railing and ranting about some stuff that makes us so angry in this society. And I got, got in that mindset. And I walked in the gas station yesterday. The man made a joke. And it was one of those times I just opened my mouth without thinking and said something I shouldn't have said. I got to give the guy credit. He handled himself nicely. But uh, I ended up going back later and just apologizing for that because I shouldn't have said what I said. Um, it wasn't about him. I didn't curse or blaspheme God or anything like that. It was just a, a remark we need to be careful about making. And it gave me an opportunity to talk about what we really need in this country. A Messiah. Not born in a manger, but one that comes and makes all these wrong things that upset us right. And so there's opportunities out there, guys. Guys, even when you put your foot in your mouth, there's an opportunity to declare him. Not just now, but always. Um... I want to look at this hallelujah chorus verse by verse. Verse 1, and after these things. This is the same thing we see in Revelation 18.1, after these things. It distinguishes between the subjects being talked about. Chapter 17, mystery Babylon. That great religious whore. 
after these things. Chapter 18 is not, it's not, it's Babylon. It's one and the same, but it's different. It's commercial Babylon. And now we're moving on to another subject. We're moving from the perspective of earth to heaven. As the destruction of commercial Babylon, which is announced in chapter 18, comes on the scene, this is what is happening in heaven. This is what's happening in heaven. After these things, something else, a new matter, additional revelation, after the destruction of mystery Babylon, the midpoint of the tribulation, after the declaration of destruction against commercial Babylon, and its onset, its onset is the seventh vial. If we look back at chapter 16, 17, and 19, before the commercial Babylon is fully judged, we're told what it looks like here at the end of chapter 19. It's a supper. It's a great supper. But the onset of that is a great shaking. Just like God shook Anchorage, Alaska, He's going to shake the earth hard. That's the preemptive strike. And then the, then the king's coming with his army. So there'll be a preemptive strike. It says all the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came into remembrance. So... After this onset, this is the scene in heaven. Chapter 18 is the fact of commercial Babylon's judgment, the fact of the judgment of the world system. Chapter 19 is the how, the play-by-play. Just like Genesis chapter 1, the fact of God's creation. Genesis chapter 2, the play-by-play in terms of man's creation in the garden. A great voice in heaven. This is a chorus. A chorus, a choir. A chorus, a great voice when a multitude of voices sound as if it's a single voice. Of much people in heaven. People. These are people in heaven at the time this takes place. It reminds me of something from back in chapter 13. Do you remember the beast out of the sea, the Antichrist. This is after religious Babylon has served her purpose and the ten kings of that final Roman, uh, revived Roman Empire judge her and it ushers the beast from his puppy form to the adult form we see in chapter 13 to set himself up as God. And when he sets himself up as God, just like in the prophet Daniel, it says this little horn spoke great things. He had, he had a big mouth and he talked big and he blasphemed God. And we're told in chapter 13, verse 6, that he blasphemed not just God, but also his name and his tabernacle, the temple the Jews have rebuilt, and them that dwell in heaven. So one of the objects of the beast's blasphemies is those dwelling in heaven at that time. Well, that's telling us that the church is in heaven. That word dwell there in the original language is from the root of the same word we get mansions in Jesus' John chapter 14 exhortation. Be not troubled, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house are many mansions. Those words are related. So the beast is blaspheming the raptured saints who are in heaven. That's subtle evidence that the church is in heaven during the tribulation, in conjunction with all the other evidence we've seen from the scriptures. But the raptured saints 
are blasphemed by the beast, but the victory belongs to them. The victory belongs to them, and it is these in heaven that lift up their voice, a great voice of much people. They're blasphemed down below, but they get the victory. Victory belongs to the bride of Christ, to the raptured church. We get the last laugh. And it's not us that laughs, it's God. The Bible tells us God, there's two times God laughs. He laughs at the prospect of the kings of the earth gathering themselves against him and overthrowing his Messiah. That's exactly what the beast attempts to do. And God, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision or confusion, Psalm 2. And the, God also laughs when the wicked plot to overthrow righteous people. God laughs at that because their end is coming. Much people in heaven. Well, who are these people? Well, obviously it's the raptured church. But it's also the Old Testament saints. Not the bride, but the friend of the bridegroom. It's the tribulation saints that have been martyred. The fruits of those 144,000 witnesses from all nations, they've been martyred and killed in the tribulation. They are in heaven. And the martyrs of all ages. These are the people in unified chorus praising God. Alleluia. And then we see four things. Salvation, glory, and honor, and power unto the Lord our God. Ascribing salvation, glory, honor, and power not to men but to God. When I... read and was studying and meditating upon this scripture and I saw these four things that are ascribed to God, I wanted to capture the the scripture that immediately came to mind when I thought about those things. I just kind of thought, opened my mind a little bit and said, all right, the first scripture that comes to mind when I hear this single word, I'm going to put into this message somehow. So when I heard or read salvation... Here's the first scripture that came to mind. Gene, look it up. Jonah 2 verse 9. When glory, when I read the word glory, Jason, Habakkuk 2, 14 came to mind. When I heard or read the word honor, Brother Daniel, Proverbs 15, 33 came to mind. Robert? When I heard the word or read the word power, I thought of John 19, 11. And I didn't know if this would even be on topic, but I, I, I just said I'd stick with it. So, salvation, Gene, Jonah 2, verse 9. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pray that, that I have vowed salvation is of the Lord. Okay. Five words, very powerful. Very powerful in the scriptures. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah had been swallowed by the whale. He thought he was in hell. He thought the bars of the earth were closing behind him. Some have said that that Jonah died and was resurrected. I don't have a dogmatic position there. But he cried out to the Lord to deliver him. And God did. The, The whale spit him out on the dry land. And what Jonah was hesitant to go to Nineveh, and he got there 
pretty quick once the whale spit him out. Because what was normally a certain day's journey, Jonah got there in a lot less time. He ran to Nineveh. But he, he makes a profound statement in a moment of distress. Salvation is of the Lord. We think and we teach and we act in the churches as if salvation depends on us. As if we've got to attract the lost. We've got to make church attractive and new. We've got to bring them in. And what we do is we bring them in and we play on their emotions. We get them to come down an aisle and repeat a prayer. And then we tell them they're saved and they have no concept what they've been saved from or what salvation even is or that it came from the hand of God. The Bible is clear that salvation is from God. It's from no other. We can't save ourselves. Our family, we can't ride their coattails into heaven. I don't know how many times I've heard on the streets or the college campuses, my dad's a preacher. So what? So what? A lot of so what's nowadays. Trump was discussing building a, a hotel in Moscow when, when, when the campaign started. So what? So what? A lot of so what's out there. Salvation is of God. And unless God is in it, it results in nothing. There ought to be freedom and liberty in that for us as a church. To serve God with conviction and not to compromise and to preach the truth and let God save people. The church isn't for the lost anyway. It's for believers to come together and fellowship and edify one another and to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can go out and reach the lost. But when we bring the lost in, they corrupt the body and turn us away. Oh yeah, the doors are open. Anybody can come here the preaching of the word. But God forbid we change what we're doing to satisfy someone that doesn't even have a part or a clue about these things. Salvation is of the Lord. That's why unless God draws you, unless the Spirit of God draws you, you can't come to Him. It's the Father that chooses the bride for His Son in Jewish culture. It's God the Father who chooses His bride. And we can't, for, the, for His Son, we can't handle that type of stuff. We don't want to talk about it. But if you've been saved, you're saved because God saved you. And ordained you from the foundation of the world. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation unto God. Salvation unto the Lord our God. Glory unto the Lord our God. Habakkuk 2.14 For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what I thought about. That's what that hymn we sing at Christmas time, Joy to the World, is talking about. Joy to the World is talking about the second coming of Christ. Not His birth. But how appropriate we would sing it because that's really what it's all about anyway. The second coming of Christ is one of the most important doctrines in the Scriptures. But it's not talking about the new earth here. This earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That has not happened since that prophecy was uttered. In fact, it hasn't existed on this planet since before the fall of man. In the beginning, when the sons of God sang glory to the Lord when the heavens and the earth were created. But it will come. And it will come under the authority of the Messiah when He sets up a kingdom. 
So as bad as it is right now, one day God's glory will cover this earth. And that glory comes in like a flood when the heavens are opened and one likened to the Son of Man comes riding on a white horse. Honor. Proverbs 15.33 The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. Before honor is humility. That's what I thought about. And then I thought about Christ the Messiah who before he is honored as king over all this earth taking possession and ruling what is rightfully his he was humbled first. He humbled himself first and became, and became a man, was obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. Where, but God has highly exalted him, and one day he'll be honored, and every knee will bow, even those that blaspheme him now, and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a lesson for that. There's a lesson in that for us. As we seek honor, humility comes before honor. Before honor is humility. Now, when the Bible says something, we should take heed. But when the Bible says the same thing, the same exact words twice, we really ought to take heed. If I flip over a couple pages in Proverbs eighteen twelve, before the destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. It's in there twice. It's modeled by Jesus Christ. If we'll honor each other and honor others in our lives, then we'll be honored. That was the whole essence of what Jesus taught when he said that seek to be a servant because the greatest here will be the least in the kingdom of heaven and the least here will be the greatest. These are just things that came to mind as I saw these ascriptions of praise. Power. Oh, there's another place, excuse me, where the, the Bible says something twice. Twice. Same exact thing. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Says twice, God resists the proud. Uh, God get, resists the proud and give, gives grace to the humble. Probably ought to listen up, listen up to those things. Um, power, John nineteen eleven. This was Jesus before Pilate. Pilate attempted to question him. Jesus didn't see any need to defend himself. And Pilate said, why don't you answer me? Don't you understand I have power to deliver you to be crucified? I have power to save your life. What Jesus said there was very powerful. To the, to the Roman governor, you would have no power here unless it were given you from above. Therefore, those that have delivered me unto you, they have the greater condemnation. That's powerful. All that we see around us, all the enemies that have encompassed us round about, please understand they have no power unless God gives it to them. None of this evil has any power unless God allows it. God has the power to allow it and he reserves the power to stop it at the precise time that he is ordained. Not the precise year, not the precise month, the precise day or week or day or, or hour or minute, but the precise second. 
Everything has been prepared for a day, an hour, and a second. And God reserves that power. And we ought to model Jesus there when we face the evils of this world, the darknesses of this world. You have no power unless it's given you from above. You have no power. Salvation, glory, honor, and power unto the Lord our God. Those are the things that came to mind. Salvation is God's. There's a day coming when the earth will be filled with that glory. Before honor is humility. And the wicked have no power over us unless it's given them from above. Praise the Lord. Unto the Lord our God. What God is this talking about? There's a lot of gods out there. People pay lip service to a lot of gods. But make no mistake, the God that is being spoken of here is the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not the God of the Quran. Not the Mormon God who lives on the planet Kolob. Not the Jehovah's Witness God who can't, can't know how many people will follow him. Not the gods that men have made up in their own minds here in America to serve their own lust and pleasures. It's the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the prophets. The God that said, I will bless those that bless you to Abraham and curse those that curse you. This is the God that the chorus praises. This is our God. This God says some pretty powerful things in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah has lots to say about the birth of Christ. Is that it has lots to say about the millennial reign of Christ. It has a lot to say about the very things we're reading about in Revelation. And in the midst of all this, we talked about God's ability to declare the end from the beginning in chapter 46 this week in those devotions. Let's look at Isaiah 45. This is the God that's being talked about. This is the God to whom these much people are praising. Verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself. The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Surely one shall say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. This is the God. Look unto me and be ye saved. God says. Salvation is of the Lord and it's in the Lord. Salvation's of Him and in, in Him. Righteousness is of Him and in Him. Our righteousness is not ourself. It's the righteousness of God that can save us. And the same God that declares unto Him, every knee shall bow, took on the form of human flesh and became a man. And before God the Son, every knee shall bow. Because the Son is God. That's the God we preach.
It's kind of funny because in that same context, you flip back to chapter 43, verse 11. God also says something that the Mormons and the JWs can't handle. They don't know what to do with it. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. So not only is there one God, and in Him alone is salvation, but He alone is the Savior. You know, the Mormon church will say Jesus is the Savior of the world. The JWs will say the same thing. But they, they, they deny that He's God, that He's the essence of God, that He is God the Son. They deny that. Well, how can Jesus be the Savior and not be God? According to this, again, this is another one of those examples of God's word says it once, listen up. When he says it twice, you better take heed. Turn over to Hosea chapter 13, 4. This is God speaking to Israel, telling them very plainly, you know, Israel sees that Messiah is a savior. They expected Christ to come and deliver them. Messiah is a savior. Many can't see or are too blind to see that Messiah is God. It is the God of Israel. But the whole Old Testament scriptures are plain. Hosea 13, 4. Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. If Jesus is the Savior, then he's God. Or we can't trust a word in the Bible. Because that's clear. One God, one Savior... One way to Him, and that's through the Messiah. That's the Lord our God that the saints praise and honor in the throne room of heaven. Verse 2, for true and righteous are His judgments. Why are they praising God? Why are they ascribing salvation and honor and glory and power to God? Why are they singing hallelujah in unison? Because his judgments are true and righteous. This chorus isn't praising his salvation. It's ascribing glory and honor to him. But the purpose of this chorus is to celebrate his judgments. His judgments upon the whore. Upon the world system. Why? Because these judgments are true and righteous. Hallelujah. That one word, that's the key to the difference between something we talked about a couple weeks ago. You know how the Bible says in Proverbs not to rejoice over our enemy when he falls? But yet we're told in Psalms that the righteous will rejoice in the judgment and wash their feet in the blood of the wicked. We're not to rejoice over our enemy But we should rejoice in the Lord when our enemy is judged by Him. There's a difference between rejoicing over our enemy and rejoicing in God when our enemy is overthrown by Him. Therefore, vengeance is not ours. Vengeance is God. We should pray for it. Pray for God to pour out His vengeance. Call out some of these wicked people in the news by name to God. Call out these wicked, corrupt people on the North Carolina Board of Elections that God will pour out His vengeance. Pray against them. I told an atheist one time, we were preaching on the street and he came up against us and was so haughty about there's no God and no this and no that. 
And I just said, well, I'm going to go home. What's your name? He told me his name. I said, I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to pray that God will kill you and your children. Left it at that. And that's righteous. Let God do it. But all of a sudden, the big bad atheist who claimed and boasted that there was no God took, was angry. How dare you? Well, why would you be? If there's no God, why are you? What, what, that would just be a foolish statement. It shouldn't bother you a bit. But it did bother him. Because men know there's a God and they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So that's a way to get an atheist's attention. I'm just going to pray God kills your children tonight. In a wicked home like that, for God to take little children would be a merciful thing to redeem them from that wickedness. And, and under the age of accountability covered in His grace. That's, that's, a, that's a merciful thing. Just like for the children of the Canaanites in the Old Testament. But that's a way to, 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 to show that, that, that an atheist... Uh, no God convictions really aren't that strong after all. Just like when the earth shakes. That changes everything in a moment. There's no such thing as an atheist. There really isn't. We as the church, we, we, we don't want to celebrate. We don't even want to talk about God's judgment. But it's, a, it's wicked foolishness to deny it. All throughout the scriptures, God's judgments are hailed as true and righteous. Again, the same thing that's said here in Revelation 19.2, in Psalm 19.9, in Psalm 119.160, true and righteous are thy judgments. Because it is God, the creator, God, the maker, God, the righteous ruler that judges, his judgments are true and righteous by default. They're true and righteous because He carries them out. They're not a standard God has to adhere to. They are the standard because God carries them out. I was amazed. It just amazes me to hear the foolishness of so-called educated people. You know, there's a difference between intelligence and... Well, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom... There's a difference between intelligence and wisdom. I don't know that what we see on our college campuses anymore, it's certainly not wisdom. I start to wonder if it's even knowledge and it, can it even be intelligence. You can have a lot of book knowledge and you can have a degree and you can get to your professor to give you a grade and then you, you can pass a test and then go out and not remember anything the next day and you're hailed as wise and intelligent. And who is this preacher to come along? And then they want to know where you got your college degree. It's not enough to tell them that I have a master's degree. I graduated summa cum laude. Then they want to know where it was from. And it wouldn't matter if it was from Harvard or Yale or Berkeley. It wouldn't be good enough. They'd always find a reason. They hail their education. And yet what comes out of the mouths is so foolish and ridiculous. I honestly believe that a slug... Or a sponge on the seafloor has more intelligence than most college campus students in America. The American college students are one of the dumbest animals on the planet nowadays. I'm talking dumb. And it's willful ignorance. We were on a campus recently sharing the Word of God. And this girl got in my face and talked about what 
if, if there's a God, this is what He should do. He should love everybody. He should think homosexuality is okay. He should approve gay marriage. He should just let love win. He should, he should, he should. And I said, girly, think about it. Who are you? You're going to sit here and say what God, the almighty king of the universe, should do. Who are you to tell the creator what he should and shouldn't do? What foolishness. What foolishness. And in that context, you know, they want to, they've gone to their little websites, their little atheist websites, and they've, you know, went to where there's these supposed scriptural contradictions and they, they, they go and read that and they tell you, well, what about this? Are you wearing clothes that are mixed fiber? Do you eat shellfish? They, got, they all have the same thing. They couldn't tell you where that is in the Bible. And, uh, or, or God says it's okay to rape women and all this kind of garbage. And I just say, you know what? I'm not here to defend God's word. God's judgments are true and righteous. And if you're looking for an apology from the preacher for a single solitary word written in the book of Leviticus or the book of Deuteronomy or in Romans chapter 1, you're not going to find it here. I make no apologies for what's in this book. Not a single apology for what God says in Deuteronomy. For what He says in Leviticus to Israel about how to keep their nation clean. Half of this mess we see on the news... And we hear about in the streets can be fixed. And God's word gives us a model through the law of Israel. By the law, by the law was not salvation, but by the, law, by the law there was civilization and law and order. That shows us our sin, points us to a Savior. But there's a pattern. What America can fix its problem, and it's right there in Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, Exodus, Genesis. We don't even want to talk about that. You know, they crucified that lady down there in Mississippi that talked about, you know, just kind of a... You can't even make a joke anymore without being crude. They want to parse every little thing you say. Made a joke about going to a public hanging. If there was a public hanging against unrighteousness in this country, I'd be on the front row. There's a way to fix the problems in this country, but we don't, we're not interested in that. I'm not going to make an apology for anything God has says, because His judgments, the law, the statutes, and the judgments He gave to Israel are true and righteous. They were ne- never given as a means of salvation. They were given to show us His righteousness and His sin. And even the spirit of the law renders us guilty. That's why if we have lust in our heart, we've committed adultery in our heart. Jesus said, if you harbor hatred in your heart for another man, you're angry without a cause. You've murdered him in your heart. We're judged by the law. That's why we need a Savior. But the law is righteous in judgment. Judge, uh, righteous and just. Paul says the law is holy. And it's a pattern for nations. Deuteronomy 4, God says, I'm giving you... He, he, Moses was talking to the new generation, that, the young generation that survived the wilderness wandering. That first generation was all dead. And they were getting ready to go into the land of Canaan under Joshua. And Moses had reached the end of his life. And there in the plains of Moab, modern day Jordan... Moses reminded them of everything that had happened. And Moses told them that what God had said was true and righteous and that this law was righteous and they were to live according to it because it would be their sight. It would be a testimony in the eyes of the nations. 
so that the Gentile nations would look at Israel and say, what a righteous God this is. What a righteous law this is. That's what it was supposed to be. Israel didn't do what she was supposed to do. She wasn't the testimony to the nation she was supposed to, but the law is still that testimony. <laughs> Moses is sitting atop the Supreme Court building on that panorama up there of sculptures holding the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I mean, we could fix this country real easily. Everybody criticizes Leviticus because of what it says about homosexuality and sexual sin and, 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 and all of these things, but it, it, nobody pauses to see that God cares for the elderly. God tells his people to care for the elderly, to care for the little babies, to treat the disabled with respect, to treat the stranger with hospitality. All those things we don't do in this country either. But I'll make no apology for God's judgments. They're true and righteous, and we can find them from Genesis to Revelation. Don't make apologies for the Scriptures. And guys, you don't need to defend them either. We're heralds. We announce God's Word. But like Martin Luther said, the Bible can defend itself. It's, a, it's like a lion in a cage. All we need to do is open the door and let him out. And he can take care of himself. God, God should do this, this, and this. Come on, give me a break. Who is the pot? Who is the, the pot fashioned by the potter to say to the potter, why have you made me thus? Who are you to say to God, why did you make me this way? Paul says this in, 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 in Romans chapter 9. For true and righteous are his judgments. The rest of verse 2 is what I would call the first stanza of this chorus. There's two stanzas. The first one, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. In this first stanza, Alleluia for God's judgment upon mystery Babylon, the whore, the religious whore that shocked John when he saw her in chapter 17, typified by Roman Catholicism down through the ages. And I believe the Catholic Church will be a, 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 an important instrument in Antichrist ushering into power after the church, the true church, is raptured out. But she's destroyed. What she has done to so many throughout the ages, 50 million Bible believers between A.D. 500 and the Reformation, butchered by Holy Mother Whore Rome against, in, in the name of Jesus. Unbelievable. Bible believers. That's why our country was established. People fled here so they could worship God freely and escape that madness. She's judged. What she did to others will be done to her. And the saints are praising God. She has been judged. She corrupted the earth with her fornication, her spiritual adultery. Roman Catholicism is every bit the spiritual adultery that rabbinic Judaism is. It's a spiritual adultery against the God of the Bible and against His Messiah. She corrupted the earth with her fornication and God has avenged her. He has avenged his servants at her hand. And the saints praise him. They praise him. Not rejoicing over their enemy, but praising the God who took vengeance upon their enemy. When I think about this phrase, he hath avenged the blood of his servants, I'm reminded of a passage from Deuteronomy. 
Not going to make any apology for it. Moses sings a song to the people of Israel at the end to give testimony of the things of God. One of the reasons why the Jews will sing the scriptures like they sing the psalms in the in the uh, the synagogue services is it's a uh, what do they call that a, a new, uh, mnemonic device. It's a way to remember things. And that's why in the scriptures, when you look at the Hebrew Old Testament, there's marks in there. And these marks tell you where the stress is. And they give a musical cadence to the scriptures. When Jesus talked about a jot and a tittle, okay, a, tittle, a, a jot's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a yod. It looks like an apostrophe. The tittle is one of those marks that distinguishes a letter from another. Or it could be something like a diacritical mark that, 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 uh, that uh, gives a sense of rhythm. And they were to, in the singing, they could remember. How many of us can't hardly remember a scripture we mem- that we uh, memorized as a kid, but we can remember a song we liked 25 years ago? Music has a power to, to ingrain itself in the me- in memory. That's a good thing. It could be a bad thing. Satan has used music to control people for ages upon ages. But in the Hebrew scriptures, they're written with a rhythm, and there are marks there that indicate that. But Moses sang a song in that sense so the people would remember it. He put it to music. That's what we see here in Deuteronomy 32. Now, what's interesting is there's only one Bible in the English language today, particularly in the Old Testament, that actually preserves the musical cadence of the Old Testament. It's the King James Bible. It's got a cadence to it. Those translators saw the need to preserve the cadence that can't be separated from the Hebrew text in the English language. Again, to aid those who read and studied to be able to put it in our heart. We're not supposed to read the Bible. We're supposed to learn it and put it in our heart. And that cadence. I've memorized scriptures growing up. I've tried to do it from modern versions. I'm telling you, try to memorize scripture from a modern Bible without that cadence and rhythm. You'll find it difficult. But that good old King's English preserves that cadence that the Hebrews, the Hebrew scribes wrote down the scriptures to help us remember. But Moses sang a song and he put it to song so that the people would remember important things. Give, it says the, uh, in Deuteronomy 31, Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Then he drops some blunt truth. And over there toward the end of this song, In verses 35 on down to 47, he talks about vengeance, the vengeance of God. The saints say that God has avenged them upon her, the great whore. It reminded me, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge His people. If you go down to verse 39, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. 
I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Verse 42, I will make mine arrows drunk with blood. Verse 43, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. That's exactly what the saints are singing in, in, in chapter 19, the first stanza. He, will, he avenges the blood of his servants. Moses said they, he will avenge. The Hallelujah Chorus says he has avenged. The song of Moses is referenced earlier. Remember those, those uh, saints gathered, those Jewish saints gathered with the Messiah there in Revelation 14 and they sang the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And I probably talked about this back then. I'll probably repeat myself. It's been so long. But in verse 35 of Moses' song there, there, there's a phrase, their foot shall slide in due time. Now, when you read that, you probably think that's not very profound. I mean, that doesn't, you know, what, what, what do you exegete there? I mean, that's just kind of one of those phrases you skip on over and move on. And, you know, there's not... You know, what, how, how, how could God use that? Does anybody know what is significant about that little phrase in history? Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, In the Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was taken from that text. Their foot shall slide in due time. Back in the early 1700s, the uh, People had come over and established the colonies, God-fearing people. There were colonies set up and a zeal for righteousness and a zeal for missions. All of these things had cooled and produced dead religion. Dead religion that would persecute Baptist preachers who preached without a license given to them by the the, uh, colonial government. There was never a Baptist preacher executed in this country for preaching the Bible. But there were some who were whipped, publicly beaten, and thrown in prison up in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and Virginia and some other places. But out of that dullness, out of that wickedness, God did an amazing work. I mentioned earlier, this was during the time of the British, early 1700s. 1727, there was an earthquake in New Hampshire that some saw as a sign of God's judgment. And there was some temporary reform in the lives of some people in New England, but there was no true conversion. It didn't really do much. It got people's attention. And some said this is perhaps the judgment of God, but it really didn't change anything. There was an earthquake. People got scared. They went to church. And then a few days later, they went back about their business. Exactly what America did after 9-11. After 9-11, the churches were full. A couple of weeks maybe a month or so, and then it all went right back to where it was before. It's the way of things. But after this earthquake, things didn't really change. But toward the end of the 1720s and up into the 1750s, a revival suddenly exploded throughout the colonies. About 30 years There were some different things that happened in different churches and it got people thinking that earthquake was the start of it. But then suddenly there was spiritual awakening. And 
con uh, co uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, contemporaneously, at the same time, God would, God would be doing the same things in, in the continent of Europe and in the revivals in England. It's amazing, amazing testimony. But in the, the, the American colonies, there was a series of revivals that broke out between the, in the later 1720s up through the mid-1750s, and this is called the First Great Awakening. It's one of the key events in American history because it set the stage for the revolution. Prior to the Great Awakening, you know, the, the people of the different colonies, most of them never even visited another colony. When John Adams went down to, uh, I forget which event it was, uh, uh, in our nation's founding, he had never even been out of his colony before. It was the first time he'd even let his, left his colony. And the colonies were separate and distinct, and they pretty much minded their own business. But it was through the spiritual awakening that the colonies became tied together in a common bond. And that common bond would allow them to stand in unison against the British. Had there not been a spiritual awakening, a revival, there would have been no war of independence and no victory. The message that seemed to ring loud during this period was one of personal repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation apart from dead religion. Same thing we preach today. Now, most people don't understand that the Bible of the First Great Awakening was none other than the AV 1611 King James Bible. The king ain't on it. The king ain't in it. That's what my friend Ken likes to say. It's funny. <laughs> the Bible of the first great awakening was this King James Bible. Men preached it. The people believed it. And thousands were saved from it. It was believed to be God's word without error in the English language. So all of these scriptures in our King James New Testament that the modern Bibles cut out, well, they were believed to be scriptures. And they were used by God in transformed communities. The fruit is the proof. Not only in our lives, but in the preservation of the scriptures. We can know where the truth is based on the spiritual fruit. My, how things have changed. You know, back then there was one English Bible that was hard to get. People didn't just have their own personal copies. And yet lives were profoundly changed and children knew the scriptures. Today we can walk into a Christian bookstore. Let's just say the motivation of the modern Bible translators, translators was pure. Let's just say it was pure. Oh, we want, to put the, we, want to, we want to translate the Bible in an easier language so more people can understand and therefore more people get saved and know the Bible. Well, let's say that was the motive. Well, because money was involved, I can assure you that wasn't the motive. Follow the money. Look at copyright. You know, I can't even legally produce big sections of modern Bibles when I preach because I'm violating some ridiculous copyright law. And in order to get a copyright, you have to be different than other Bibles. So how can you faithfully translate if you've got to get your copyright? But that's beside the point. This book's not copyrighted. I can copy it and produce it and print it as, as, as much as I want here in the States. But... Um, here we can go into a bookstore today. A person can find umpteen numbers of Bibles to satisfy whatever theme they're looking for. Numerous, countless translations, paraphrases. The Bible's so easy to, easy to understand. But then you look around 
And there's an ignorance of the Scriptures in our society that goes beyond anything that's ever been in the history of this nation. Just amazing. Just amazing to me. But the Bible of the Great Awakening was this King James. And there was approximately thirty to 40,000 conversions that took place in the colonies in the 1740s alone. Just that decade. Yeah, there was things going on in New England, the Middle, Middle Atlantic colonies, even down here in North Carolina. It's an amazing time in American history. It's where men like Whitfield and Wesley and Jonathan Edwards became important on the scene of America. History, common people, not great kings or powerful politicians, but preachers. But some of the first stirrings of this revival were up in Massachusetts um, in the early 1730s. Some of the first stirrings were in Northampton, Massachusetts, in a little church there that was pastored by a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is often regarded as one of the first major thinkers in American history. At age 13, he graduated from Yale College, first in his class. Can you imagine somebody... Who's 13 in here? McKenna. Someone McKenna's age going to Yale and graduating first in their class? That's amazing. That was the way it was back then. At age 21, he was a tutor at the college. In 1729, he inherited the pastor, pastorate of a little church in Northampton after his grandfather died. And he began to preach. And it began to have an effect. And he was not known as a powerful orator or a very charismatic individual who would thunder from the pulpit and bang the pulpit and get out here and gyrate around. No, he was a boring preacher. He was known for writing his sermons and then he would stand there and read them monotone. They were read. Can you imagine if I stood up here and read my sermon monotone? But yet, the truth was powerful. He wrote a book called The Distinguishing Marks of the Spirit of God that talked about the difference between a true believer and all the false religion that was out there. And... In, uh, on July 8, 1741, he traveled from North, Northampton down to Enfield, Connecticut to fill in in a pulpit of a neighboring church. And it was there that he read this sermon he had prepared, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the guy's just reading it monotone up there in a dead church. And then suddenly, in the middle of his preaching, people started getting out of their chairs and falling to the floor, weeping and moaning and crying out to God for repentance. The altar was full. And an amazing thing happened that night. Now, Edward's sermon is not talking about love and peace. It's not talking about love and tolerating everybody and all of this kind of cheesy stuff. That message is preaching about hell and God's judgment. And it's powerful. <laughs> Just like when Jonah went to Nineveh. In 40 days, this wicked city will be overthrown. And they repented. And from this particular service, a revival broke out and people were changed and it started going out into the communities. 
and it lit a wildfire. Something you wouldn't think today could even possibly do that. This little phrase right here in Deuteronomy 32, 35, their foot shall slide in due time, was the basis of this hellfire and brimstone message that was read monotone by a really boring guy behind a pulpit visiting a church to fill in for someone else. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Why are we trusting in man-made strategies? Here's the sad thing, though. Even when God brings revival, it's the scientific law of thermodynamics. The scientific law discovered before Charles Darwin... Those two laws of thermodynamics discovered before Charles Darwin publicized his theory of evolution. That disproved his theory. Everything goes from order to disorder. Spiritually, everything goes from order to disorder unless there's an intervention from a Messiah. It's funny because Edwards was so instrumental in the First Great Awakening. A little... A little uh, uh, we never really read or hear about the end of his life. The same church that he pastored when this revival broke out in the early 1730s actually kicked him out in 1750. He was kicked out. At the end of his life, toward the end of his life, he was a man without a church. We, we read, who, who reads Spurgeon? Who likes to read Spurgeon? All those jewels in those devotionals and all his powerful messages. Spurgeon was very discouraged at the end of his life and was the subject of false accusation and the very people he preached these jewels to despised him. You know, that first great awakening eventually cooled. And we needed a second great awakening in the 1800s and a third one in the Civil War and there's not been a major one since. But that's the way of things because we need a Messiah. Man at his best state is vanity. But that, that church later kicked him out. He was fired from the Northampton pastorate in 1750, and then he went and did missionary work amongst the Indians, the Native Americans after that. And then toward the end of his life, they convinced him to come be the president of Princeton College. So the, the last days of his life, he actually accepted the presidency at Princeton College. He never ceased trying to be a light to the Indians. But he worked with uh, coming up with a vaccine for smallpox, and he was instrumental in discovering that vaccine, and he decided to, he wanted to test it on himself, and he reluctantly did so, and so he, inocula he was inoculated with smallpox, and that's what killed him. He died. So you think a tragic end to a man's life, but as believers, we don't think that way. He married a, a young lady named Sarah Pierpont in 1727, and together they committed to raise their 11 children in the respect of God. Someone did a genealogical study of this preacher around 1900 to determine his success as a parent. He was a, success, he was a powerful preacher, not in presence. He read his scriptures monotone, but in terms of how God used him, he was instrumental. He preached hellfire and brimstone, and it woke up entire communities of people as a result of that. But someone did a genealogical study in 1900 and they discovered that his descendants from his 11 children of this supposed preacher who didn't have great oratory skills and who ended up dying from a smallpox inoculation who was kicked out of his college, his descendants included 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 
30 judges, 100 lawyers, a dean of a prestigious law school, 80 holders of, elected holders of public office, 100, nearly 100 missionaries, three mayors of large cities, three state governors, three United States senators, a comptroller of the United States Treasury, and Aaron Burr, the vice president of the United States. That's pretty, pretty incredible, isn't it? That kind of goes along with our theme this next week, days of small things, how God can use someone. The most unexpected, one of the most unexpected phrases of Scripture here that talks about God's judgment right there in the Song of Moses is what was used by God, red monotone, to break out an amazing revival. God could still do it today. We need to be ready. The rapture could happen at any time. We know the country will fall. We know what is appointed for the last days, but doesn't mean God can't cause something like this to happen. God did something up in Anchorage the other day with some people running from him. They got shook up a little bit. I didn't mean to get off topic there, but I just every time I come across that little phrase there in, in, in Deuteronomy 32, I'm reminded of that famous sermon. We learned that in literature class. That was one of our literature assignments when I went to high school, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, make no mistake. The American education system did not have its students read and, and, and study this sermon years ago because they cared about the truth or believed the truth that was in it. They had them read it to, as, a, as, a, as a platform whereby to present Christians as crazy, craziness. But nevertheless, it was there. Nevertheless, it was a testimony. I had to read it for English class. You know, the world wants to make us look like fools. All oh, those hellfire and brimstone preachers. And then we buy right into it as a church and we follow along. And where are the hellfire and brimstone preachers today? That's what America needs. It doesn't need a border wall. It doesn't need a president. It doesn't need this and that and that. We need hellfire and brimstone preachers on the street corners and behind the pulpits. Thundering. It was preachers thundering behind the pulpits that brought about the American Revolution. It was preachers thundering that ensured our Bill of Rights when this was debated by the, uh, the uh, Constitutional Congress. It ought to be preachers that are crying out like a trumpet today. Preachers. But where are they? Where are they? <clears throat> Too busy doing trunk or treat. All this other stuff the church does. Verse 2, the first stanza. Hallelujah for the judgment that has happened upon Mystery Babylon. Chapter 17, the midpoint of the tribulation. Verse 3, and again they said, Hallelujah, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. This is the second stanza. That phrase again comes from a Greek word that means secondly. Deuteros. Secondly. So we're talking about a second stanza here. Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. This is a reference to commercial Babylon in chapter 18. And the reason I can say that is because in chapter, in verse 2, 
He hath judged the great whore. That verb is in the aorist tense. It's past tense. But when you get to verse 3, and her smoke is rising up. It's a present active verb there in the original language. Happening right now. And at that moment, the seventh vial having been poured out, that's exactly what's happening. The cities of the nations fell with that great earthquake and Babylon came into remembrance. Her smoke was rising. So this is a stanza praising God for judgment upon commercial Babylon. In both stanzas, the entity is referred to as her. But remember, guys, the world system has a religious element and a commercial element. It's one and the same. Two sides of the same coin. The great whore that's judged in the midpoint of the tribulation is the spirit of the commercial Babylon that's judged at the end of the tribulation. One and the same. So the word of God refers to her with the same pronoun but yet distinguishes between that her that was judged in the midpoint and her that is her smoke is rising at that moment coinciding with the pouring out of the seventh vial. Made me kind of think of Republicans and Democrats. Two sides of the same coin. Mystery Babylon, commercial Babylon, same thing. Republicans, Democrats, same thing. They hold each other up. That's why Republicans can get your votes by touting pro-life, by touting marriage, by touting all this stuff, and then they can be elected and control all three branches of government, and yet nothing gets done. And the country's worse off at the end of their presidency or their term of power. Nothing changes. They, 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 they hold each other up. I mean, you know, I don't like everything the president does, and I think some of those tweets sometimes are ridiculous, and he comes across very foolish to me sometimes, but the man needs the Lord. He needs to be saved, but in some ways he might be the best friend that the Bible-believing church has at this moment in the American government. We need to pray for him. That could change in an instant. Don't get me wrong. If Antichrist is going to be the best friend Israel's had in thousands of years, and then he suddenly changes upon them, we need to be careful putting too much faith in a man. Man. But you know, when I look at the people that hate him, they're the same people that hate the preacher and hate the Bible. So we should pray for our president. And when he does foolish things... We should pray against those foolish things. Shouldn't be afraid to call it what it is. But let's be careful not to speak evil of the ruler of our people. Not to, not to speak evil of dignities. But to realize that God has people in power for a reason. And it may be for our judgment. It may be to divide this nation and bring it down. Republicans and Democrats, same thing. Well, um, I was going to keep going. I, I thought I would actually get into the marriage supper today, but I didn't. Um, let me read verse 4 real quick, and I'll end with that. In verse 4, it's very similar to what we see in the throne room in chapter 5, verse 8. The four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. I'll probably wait till next time. I wanted to go back and look at those 24 elders. When I preached through that years ago, I talked about them representing, in particular, the New Testament church that is in heaven 
at the moment the tribulation begins. I've been thinking a little bit about that and something we're going to see in chapter 21, so I'd like to comment further. Then, of course, those four beasts are the cherubim. Remember we talked about the cherubs? One of them's missing. You know, there's no representative of the sea creature there in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Well, it's because that anointed cherub's not there. He fell. It's the great Leviathan in the sea that God's going to punish in the last day. It's Satan himself. Satan was not an angel. He was a cherub, the anointed cherub. He was in a position of authority. I'll look a little bit at that. But I guess what's worth highlighting here, and I'll end with this, the four and twenty elders that represents the redeemed, the four beasts, the same cherubim we saw there in Revelation 4 and 5. Remember a long time ago, most important verse in the Bible, Revelation 4.11. Most important chapter, Revelation 5. You can go back and think about that. But those characters that were in that verse and chapter, are, uh, we, we, we see them again And as they worshipped God at the beginning of the tribulation, so they're worshipping Him at the end. And I think what is said here is important. Amen and Alleluia. That's a challenge for us. It's in response to God's judgment. It's in response to fiery trial and tribulation. And when I looked at those two words, I thought to myself, you know what? What's the best reaction that the believer can have to God's judgment? One word. Amen. What's the best... Now remember, reaction is immediate. Sometimes we react to things when we'd be better responding to it. A reaction is immediate. A response is a reaction that results from taking time to ponder and think. A harsh answer is often in a reaction. A soft answer that turns away wrath, I would say, is a response because you've got to think about it. But there's times that we react and there's times that we respond. Sometimes there needs to be an immediate reaction when we we sit back and want to think too hard about something and end up compromising. But what's the best reaction to God's judgment? Even as we experience tribulation in our life, the best reaction is amen. What's the best response as we ponder and think about it? Alleluia. Amen and so be it. God is in control. Alleluia is praise the Lord because we can look back and see how God used it. There are things and judgments that happened in my life that were trials and tribulations that were, were painful. And I've learned that after time, I can actually look back and say hallelujah. I had lunch with a a, a pastor uh, beginning of last week I believe and we talked about some painful chapters from history in our own walks and how we come to points where we can really say hallelujah we can respond by praising God I just wish I would have had the proper reaction back then I just wish that when these things happened I would have in that moment said amen and then looked for a reason to praise God it's just a, it's a humbling uh, challenge to us <clears throat> As the saints and the elders and the cherubim praise God for His judgment, it's summed up nicely. Two words, amen, hallelujah. So this week as we go about serving the Lord, we're going to face trials. 
I don't know what's going to come to this country this week. I don't know if everything we've come to trust in is going to be there tomorrow. But let's react to what we have to deal with by saying amen. And let's respond with hallelujah. It's almost a dangerous thing to challenge you to do because that means I better do it myself. And I'm not sure what God will bring. We need to pray out first mercy. Don't pray for God to humble you. I do not do it. Don't pray for God to teach you how to be humble. or don't. I would hesitate to pray to God to teach you to trust Him. And, and you may disagree with that because He will. You're better off learning to do that without relying upon His help but not asking Him for it because He will. And uh, that's a scary thing for me to pray, but it's something we need to learn how to do. Amen. Hallelujah. So we've gotten through four verses. That's pretty good. Uh, when I come back, we'll, we'll finish up. I'm, I'm excited to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are called to that marriage supper. And to talk about who is the bride. Who's the bride? What has God ordained from her? To look at the wedding and what's happening there in heaven during the tribulation and what's going to happen at the marriage supper. And then, wow, we're going to read about another supper. Another supper that's coming. And that, that terror ought to motivate us to persuade men just like it motivated the Apostle Paul. So.